Support for this show comes from SoFi Invest. Alternative investments are now available on SoFi. Unlock the potential to build and protect your wealth with alts including real estate, venture capital, pre-IPO unicorns, and more at SoFi.com WSJ. Active investing products offered through SoFi Securities, LLC, member FINRA, SIPC. Alternative funds have unique risks, including the risk of loss, may charge high fees, can be illiquid, and may not be suitable for all investors. Prior to investing in any fund, carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and important information contained in a fund's prospectus. The neurons in your brain, bacteria that cause a strep throat, and the roots of a 500-year-old redwood tree. What do they all have in common? They're all made of cells. But as fundamental as the cell is to our world and to our biology, it's taken scientists hundreds of years to understand it. And what they've discovered has huge implications for medicine. Instead of just looking to treat organs or parts of the body, doctors are figuring out how to alter individual cells. That means treatments for diseases like diabetes and cancer that have long puzzled scientists. They could be about to crack wide open. We're entering a kind of new age of medicine in which the cell becomes the unit of therapy and potentially, you know, you can manipulate it. From The Wall Street Journal, this is the future of everything. I'm Alex Osala. Today, we speak with the cancer physician and science writer, Dr. Siddhartha Mukherjee. His latest book, The Song of the Cell, is all about how this new understanding of cells could lead to future medical breakthroughs, fixing our cells, or someday even enhancing them. Stay tuned. Hi, I'm Ben Rizzuto, wealth strategist at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of futures. At Janice Henderson, we are committed to helping you invest in a brighter future for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. Siddhartha Mukherjee, welcome to The Future of Everything. Uh, My pleasure to be here. Thank you. So you've written books about cancer. You've written books about genes. What made you want to write a book about the cell? You know, this book is in some ways part of a trilogy. It may become a quartet. When I finished the gene, I began to realize that we see the iconic image of genes and especially DNA, the molecule that carries genetic information everywhere. But if you think about living things more broadly, you suddenly realize that genes themselves are lifeless without cells. And so if we ascend a kind of ladder of complexity, the next natural unit, which is the real unit of life, and strangely doesn't have the same kind of iconic status, is the cell. The cell is the single smallest autonomous unit of life. So I wanted to ascend that ladder of complexity in terms of explaining how we're built, how we're made. And then I could see a kind of revolution in mid-birth, and that is the birth of off-cellular therapy. CAR T-cells, T-cell transplants, bone marrow transplants, the collision or actually the collusion 
between gene therapy and cell therapy, producing just remarkable new things. And so I wanted to showcase the idea that, you know, we're in the middle of an immense medical revolution. And that is, of course, going to transform our lives. Your last book, The Gene, is all about our effort to understand the human genetic code. When an article drawn from that book was published in The New Yorker, a number of scientists took issue with it. They said that errors and omissions made that piece misleading or inaccurate. And you responded to that criticism in the pages of New Yorker and elsewhere. Did that criticism change how you approached this book or anything about your process? Uh, not really. You know, when you have a book that's 500 pages, gets extracted by an editor that you have scarcely any control over, there's some kind of misunderstanding that you can take the entire book and put everything in. No one denies the classical means of gene regulation. But on the other hand, we do need to realize that there are mechanisms of gene regulation that have emerged since the classical paradigms, which are relatively unknown. So it didn't change the way that I wrote the book, but it did change, I suppose, the way I put a footnote in the excerpts that say, listen, this is seven paragraphs drawn out of a 500-page book. If you want to read the full context, you have to read the whole book. One of the interesting ideas and, and sort of tensions for me coming into reading this book was <laughs> in high school biology, we're sort of taught this very kind of rote, static image of what a cell is. And part of what makes your book so ambitious <laughs> is that a cell is so many different things. Since you graduated from medical school, which was 2000, I believe, how has our understanding of the cell changed? How is this rote image not correct anymore? Well, I think we've understood two enormous things since that time. One is how much we've underestimated the functional diversity of cells. You could literally say that there's cells, cells everywhere, and their functions are so complex and so diverse. I mean, just to take the brain, for instance, in medical school, we had no idea of how glial cells worked and um, no idea of how much they contribute to disease pathology and to the brain. The second thing is that we didn't understand how deeply our understanding of these cellular processes would ultimately influence the way we could manipulate cells. As far as cell therapy is concerned, our capacity to grow cells outside the body, our capacity to genetically modify them, has also changed dramatically. These were things that have happened in the last five or seven years. And so we, we can only begin to understand all of this as we move forward in our deeper understanding of cells in general. In the book, you argue that one of the biggest shifts in medicine is that instead of looking at whole bodies and organs, which of course is still important and we still do, we're able to understand and sometimes treat diseases at the level of individual cells. Why is this idea so groundbreaking? It's groundbreaking because we get down to the basic unit or the basic unit of pathology. Being able to manipulate that basic unit of pathology becomes vitally important as we move forward because it allows us to manipulate not at an organ level, but at the level of what constitutes the organ. Take CAR T cells, for instance. If you're making CAR T cells, you're extracting a vital part of the immune system, changing it using gene therapy, and then returning that same cell into the body so that it can perform a function. So you are weaponizing one very particular aspect of the immune system, and you're doing it at the cellular level. 
in the past, it would be unimaginable because you'd have no mechanism really to grow these cells outside the body, to change them and then return them to the body and treat a disease like cancer using this level of cellular manipulation. And it's, again, the granularity that this allows you to do, not treat at an organ level, but at a cell level. That actually kind of touches on another tension that I thought was super interesting, which is this blurring between the self and the other. And one example you use is the Lowry twins. Can you tell us a little bit about that story? So Nancy Lowry and Barbara Lowry were twins. They were from Tacoma near Seattle. And Nancy in the 1950s came down with rare disease called aplastic anemia in which your blood stem cells stopped functioning. And there was no cure for that disease at that time. The only way was to somehow replenish her bone marrow. Extremely fortunately, she happened to have an identical twin who didn't have the disease. And so E. Donald Thomas, the physician, had been experimenting in New York with various therapies, including, most importantly, transplanting or moving bone marrow from one person to the other. At that time, he could only do it between identical twins because they had to be fully matched. And so as Nancy's bone marrow was failing, he withdrew bone marrow from Barbara and basically gave it to Nancy Lowry. And that twin's bone marrow engrafted and began to produce normal blood. And Nancy lived for several years, basically, with her twin's blood. And that was the first successful bone marrow transplant. Now, of course, since then, we've performed hundreds of thousands of bone marrow transplants and realized that not, not everything has to be matched, but that was one of the classic examples of cellular therapy, the transfer of bone marrow stem cells, essentially, from one twin into the other. In terms of the body, though, the self and the other becomes this difficult kind of game, right? Like, this is now in my bone marrow. This is my bone marrow. So this is now me, right? That's right. And it creates a kind of, I would say, metaphysical or philosophical conundrum that people gloss over. These hundreds of thousands of patients who are now walking around with someone else's bone marrow are really what I define in this book provocatively as new humans. We haven't seen people like this before in human history. These are people who are really chimeras. Their bodies are of themselves, but their bones, the bone marrow and their blood belongs to someone else. And as we enter the space more deeply in which you are transplanting cells, moving cells around, um, putting electrodes into human brains to stimulate neural circuits, having what I would call various prostheses or cellular therapies that enable completely new kinds of function. We're entering a kind of new age of medicine in which the cell becomes the unit of therapy and potentially you can manipulate it. You know, of course, there's a lot of talk about gene therapy. But again, gene therapy is really cellular therapy. If you don't get the right cell at the right time, genetically corrected or manipulated, you don't get anything. And so once again, we come back to this idea that it's the cell that integrates all the information and thereby moves us from one arena of medicine or past of medicine into a future. In the future, could we use cells not just to treat disease, but to augment our capabilities? That's after the break.
Hello, I'm Laura Castleton, U.S. Head of Portfolio Construction and Strategy at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of brighter futures for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. I want to go back to this idea of new humans because in some ways the treatments that you're talking about for some of these diseases doesn't feel so out there to us right now. Like they are either in early stages or at least within our realm of understanding, right? But you do say that this is a distinctly non-sci-fi idea. But then some of these features that you talk about, you know, these chimeras of people and individuals and other types of DNA, I mean, that that feels kind of sci-fi. So tell me a little bit more about this new human idea. It's a provocative idea, I think, and it's an idea that people will come to with a little bit of a question, because I think that we continue to underestimate how much that means in terms of our conception of humans. We are moving or attacking or changing the process by which we affect repair and rejuvenation by transplanting stem cells. Um, Just take the work that Helen Mayberg's doing. She's putting electrodes into human brains to a tiny area to stimulate a set of neurons that are maybe responsible for depression. And so what I call a new human is the idea that by manipulating cells, we're manipulating humans, but that we're doing so in manners that were unimaginable. Imagine, you know, a person walking around with an electrode in their brain. Imagine a person who's been transplanted with cells that have changed their capacity to make insulin. So this whole idea of the new human is vastly complex and is something that I think we're just learning to deal with. I mean, when the first patients were transfused with another person's blood, people really thought that they would emerge changed. Um, They thought that their psyche would change, their personalities would change because so much of your psyche and personality was thought at that time to be related to your blood. And so we're doing this, I would say, in a manner that seems perhaps less sci-fi to you, but to me, it seems extraordinarily futuristic. A new human is not Keanu Reeves in a black mumu. A new human is the kind of person we produce when we manipulate your T-cells or when we put electrodes in your brain, when we combine prosthesis with cellular prosthesis. There are people walking around with sickle cell anemia where we've manipulated their genes so that they express a fetal hemoglobin and essentially convert their old blood into young blood. That is pretty sci-fi to me. And it is already being done. We're already in the middle of all of this. So if we follow that forward and assume that these treatments become the standard for these various diseases, right, from HIV to infertility to heart attacks and, and some of the others that you mentioned as well, what are some of the hurdles that stand in the way of that? Well, a big one is, is one you already, you already talked about, which is finding the right cell that operates in the right space in the right time. What is the cellular locus of the disease? So that's one, obviously. The other is finding how to manipulate them. Uh, not easy. It means doing some form of gene therapy. People think about gene therapy as if you throw a gene into the body 
and somehow it gets to the right cell and makes the right change. That's exactly not the case. The cell part comes first. You have to get to the right cell. There have been certainly attempts to make genetic changes, I would say, in vivo, in situ, uh, to deliver the genes into the right cells within the body. Actually, one of the efforts in my laboratory involves doing exactly that. But nonetheless, even there, you have to find the right cell in the right context, with the right gene in, in the right time. So that's, of course, a, a very important hurdle. And finally, the potential hurdle of the self and the non-self. When we put in cells from someone else, your body has a whole system to recognize those cells as foreign and thereby change the way that your body responds to those cells. So we have to find a way of tolerizing your body to these foreign cells such that they don't become, again, a problematic locus of rejection. Yeah. Those are not insignificant. Those are not insignificant. But, you know, bit by bit, we're sort of getting to the point that we can do things like this. We're obviously transplant, a transplant from someone else's body is now part and parcel of bone marrow transplantation. We will very soon, I think, begin to see uh, many other examples in which cells taken from other parts of other humans become part of ourselves, breaking the barrier of the self and the non-self. The next sort of jump from all of this, of course, and you get into this right at the end of your book, is to go from treatment via cellular medicine to augmentation, right? To not just repair what isn't working right, but to enhance. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like, should should there be a line that this shouldn't cross? Yeah, I think that absolutely there should be lines that we, we don't cross. I mean, I think the distinction is between disease and desire. We've had very strong and powerful ideas about disease because disease is linked, of course, to suffering. And suffering itself is a strong North Star for me as a physician in order to design therapies or to accept therapies that have to do with the manipulation of cells. Desire is not disease. Desire is to become something that is not defined as disease, becoming taller, having more attributes, whatever kind you want. And I think that's where people draw the line between desire and disease. The problem is that those lines are shaky lines. They're not hard and fast lines. There's lots of gray areas in between. And so that distinction becomes increasingly important because, because those lines are shaky. I'll give you one historic example, which is in the book. For a long time, there were people who were very staunchly against IVF because they thought that it crossed the line between disease and desire. They argued that humans have lived with infertility for all our previous existence. And therefore, it was part of what they might consider the normal human condition. And yet others argued that for some people, there's an aching desire to have a child. And that aching desire amounts to suffering. Now we have taken it for granted. But back when... Edwards and Steptoe famously had the first new human, Louise Brown, the first IVF baby. This debate was actually very active. People really thought that a line had been crossed and that line was uncrossable. And so in some cases, it's very easy to define. Cancer, clearly a problem, clearly a disease. But the augmentation of height for someone with extreme short stature, some people with extreme short stature would say we're fine. It's a problem of the way you've made the world up. It's not a problem of the way we are made up. 
Whereas others would say that there's an aching or a suffering associated with it. And so it's not always clear. I would say it's mostly clear. And I think that's, for me, a very important distinction and my personal North Star in terms of what's permissible and not permissible. But, you know, in those kinds of gray areas, who gets to decide this? The question of who gets to decide this is is the most complex question because each country has its own guidelines. In the book, I call it the distinction between the one, the many, and the many, many. The one is the lone scientist or perhaps the lone patient. The many is the community of scientists and patients. And the many, many is the larger public. But this is a debate that is a many, many debate because the many, many are you and me. We as a community need to make decisions. The problem is that there is really no international body that has the authority nor a precedent to make that decision. So it's left to individuals, left to countries, left to institutions. And so it's very dispersed right now. The community of scientists has learned that you can write or wrap yourself around the rules as He Jiankui, the Chinese scientist who I would say went rogue and created the first CRISPR babies I think we're facing a new era where scientists and to some extent patients are claiming a different kind of autonomy and there is no simple way to regulate that new autonomy. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. Where do you see cellular medicine going, looking like in 2030? I think we'll still concentrate on the the basics, transplantation, not augmentation, but there are big challenges. How do you treat a type 1 diabetic by making stem cells and converting them into cells that make insulin and transplanting them back into the body? That would make these people completely, hopefully, no longer dependent on giving themselves injections of insulin. Uh, It would become a, a new organ made out of new cells. A whole new era of vaccines that has come about. We've already seen their powerful effects on the COVID pandemic. Vaccines are basically cellular therapy. They begin with where the vaccination agent is. In the case of two of the COVID vaccines, they were mRNA. But the mRNA had to, again, go into a cell, get enlivened to make a protein. And that protein elicited a cellular response in B cells to make antibodies that would hopefully neutralize the SARS-CoV-2 virus. So if you think about the pathway of a vaccine, it's really manipulating cells in the body. So I think we'll see the birth of new vaccines, new kinds of vaccination methods, and all of that in 2030. We'll also begin to see, as I point out in the book, people trying to blur the lines because IVF makes it possible to do embryonic genetic manipulation using CRISPR. And so I think what we will also see at the same time as we develop these various modalities to treat diseases is the capacity to try to push the ethical boundaries of changing embryos. And that's going to be much more complex than we have ever encountered. Yeah, it's going to put those ethical guidelines, as it were, to the test. Absolutely. And as they put them to the test, I mean, those will be undeniably new humans. So if you're skeptical about the word new human now, you'd better be prepared to be surprised when these new humans arrive, because they will be genetically changed forever. Siddhartha Mukherjee, thanks so much for chatting. Thank you very much. Siddhartha Mukherjee's new book is The Song of the Cell. 
What surprises you most about cells and how they could shape the future of medicine? Tweet us at WSJ Podcasts. The Future of Everything is a production of The Wall Street Journal. Stephanie Ilgenfritz is the editorial director of The Future of Everything. This episode was produced by me, Alex Osola, with help from Ariana Asparu. Jonathan Sanders is our booking producer. Our fact checker is Aparna Nathan. Jessica Fenton is our sound designer. Scott Salloway is our supervising producer. Thanks for listening. <laughs>